Hi, Natalie. Hey, Tara. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Any new uh, music plans for you coming up? I know you've always got something on the books. Oh, yeah. Always. Well, I'm going to see Beyonce. What? Next week. Where? In Atlanta. In Atlanta. Oh, okay. Mercedes-Benz. Yeah. And then I actually just bought my flight to Chicago to see Peter Gabriel live. That's incredible. When is that happening? At the end of September. End of September. That's going to be great. Have you seen both of these artists? Have you seen them before? I wouldn't be shocked. No, never. Both are first times for you. That's rare. Yeah. I mean, and well, I don't think that Peter Gabriel has toured in many, many years. Mm, Yeah. Decades even. Wow. Lucky you. Well, make sure that you don't throw anything onto the stage since that's all the rage now, apparently. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, hi. hi. Welcome to the store. I'm Tara. I'm Natalie. Uh, we'll be over here. If you need us, just take a look around. Uh, yeah, I saw that Cardi B video where she throws the microphone at that lady. <laughs> I know. It's, it's insane. I, it's just happening so much. I don't know what's like gotten into people these days. You know, yeah. I saw a clip there. There was a K-pop concert where somebody straight up put a baby on the stage. And the baby was just what? crawling around on the edge of the stage. And one of the poor girls, the performers had to come and like pick the baby up and give it back. <laughs> They're really getting out of control now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But this, this Cardi B thing is, ooh, she's getting sued. You know, her aim was really good though. I, I have to give I was very her impressed for that. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. impressive. Oh, hey, look who it is. Hi. Hello. It's Crispin Cott, author, music lover. Indeed. How's how's it going? Very well, thank you. What are you doing in Atlanta? Hanging out at our store? Uh, Yes, uh, always looking for places to buy records. This is the place to be. Yeah. So you have a couple really awesome books, Rock and Roll Explorer Guide to New York City and Rock and Roll Explorer Guide to San Francisco in the Bay Area, plus the Little Book of Rock and Roll Wisdom. That's right. You should do... You should do a rock and roll explorer guide to the South. Well, if somebody wants to pay my partner and I to do it, we'll do it. <laughs> how, how much are we talking here? <laughs> Maybe I could just drive you around and show you some spots. We got Graceland, Marshall Shoals, Sun Records. I've, I've seen all of those places in person, and they all live up to what I hoped I would see when I, when I visited Ooh, them. Yeah. Have you been to all of the places in your books? No. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> is that is that on your bucket list? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, some of them I think are, are were probably uh, of more interest to people who are fans of some of the artists that we have in there. Maybe we included uh, that were not really part of my personal taste, but that have some historical uh, significance. Mm. My partner took a lot of the photographs, particularly in the first book, uh, so he visited more of them than I ever did. The first one is the New York book or San Francisco? New York was the first one, yeah. Okay. How did you come up with that concept? It's really cool. In 2009, late 2009, we went to an event at the New York Public Library that was a Velvet Underground. It was a book launch for a book called New York Art, which is a big, thick uh, compendium of ephemera and photographs and things that, you know, kind of talked about their time in New York City, which, you know, was very brief, uh, at least as a, as a functioning band. But, uh, you know, we kind of listened to Lou Reed talking about walking by places and hearing people sing doo-wop on street corners and then that he worked in, an, in sort of like a, a 
factory for songwriters uh, that was in Long Island cities, which is sort of like on the edge of Queens, uh, between Queens and Brooklyn. Uh, and we thought, you know, that's interesting. Where is that place? Does it still exist? And that's sort of a built on conversation. My partner on these books is Mike Katz, who I've been very good friends with for a very long time. And it's sort of like built up on conversations we've had over the years. And so we thought, well, what the hell, let's turn it into a book. Yeah. I mean, it's such a good concept. Every time I go somewhere, I try to I plan my whole trip around things like that. I often visit websites like um, Atlas Obscura to see what random things are there. And then usually if it's, especially for a music heavy type city, like maybe Nashville, they'll have a whole like self-driving tour of like Music Row and things like that. Yeah. So I actually saw your book when I was visiting New York last summer and I picked it up, but I was already, it was like the day before I was leaving. So I didn't get to actually put it to use, but <laughs> next time when I go back, <laughs> I am going to do it. I bought, and it was an autographed copy. That's very happy. We signed a lot of them. So <laughs> I'm glad you found one. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I have a question for you, Crispin. I know that you're also a musician. Can you tell us a bit about your musical background? Uh, well, I'm not, uh, I wouldn't, I, I'm a drummer, so not really a musician. What? Uh, but <laughs> uh, I played drums since, <laughs> since uh, I was in high school, and I realized that that was the only thing that I could do without having to take lessons. Mm. And so uh, I found it very satisfying. I, I was able to keep rhythm. And I'm left-handed, so I knew it would look weird to people. To have the drums and that was appealing to me as well uh, so i played in you know awful punk bands in high school and in college i played in a pretty good uh funk band cool. that has actually become sort of the inspiration that whole scene and that band and the people around it was sort of an inspiration for a novel i've been working on actually that i'm going to try and sell soon Ooh. and uh and you know since then i've kind of dipped in and out of music most recently i have played with some friends in what we call the hardliest working band in showbiz <laughs> we we all met through being fans of duran duran and uh we thought well let's oh, wow. we somebody wanted us to get together and play a, sh uh, a party. And we thought that would be fun, but it would be more fun if we didn't have to actually learn the songs as they are, because we wouldn't sound like that. And we don't want to have to dress up. So we thought, well, what would, what would like girls on film sound like if Sonic Youth played it or uh, all she wants is if it was a Franz Ferdinand song. So that's kind of, that was our, and that was, that was really kind of my most recent band. But even that, like we barely ever play. <laughs> we did play some fun shows, but. I like that. I haven't really played in a long time, though, like a few years. Mm. That is kind of a cool concept, too, to to like play songs from bands that you love, but not just like them, because that also gets you off the hook from being as good as like their. Which basis. we never Is would be. John or whatever. <laughs> uh, but also, it was it was it wouldn't have been fun just to copy them. You know, it was fun right. for us to come yeah. up with our own vibe and that's true, and just make like a total racket and say we're paying tribute. Exactly. As opposed to like the tribute bands who, who, you know, try to, it's clear they're not them. Like they don't look like them. They don't really sound like them. And, but I think you're supposed to squint and kind of, and, and we didn't want anybody to have to worry about that with us. We made clear that we were not trying to be that kind of band. And some people liked it and some people didn't. <laughs> have you been in New York your whole no. career mostly? No, I was, uh, I was, my folks are both from around New York. My mother grew up in Connecticut, my dad, New Jersey. I was born in Chicago and then uh, moved back to 
New Jersey when I was little. Uh, lived in New Jersey and just outside of New York City until I was 10. And then my mother moved us to New York. And as an adult, I lived in Brooklyn for a long time. Uh, before that, I lived in San Francisco a couple times, Los Angeles, Atlanta, which I'm you know, you know is, is relevant to your interests and uh <laughs> and also charlotte for a bit and now um, my wife and i live in oakland which is where she grew up oh cool oh nice i love oakland yeah those are all very very like unique musical scenes too in those yeah. cities for sure definitely well i'm glad you're in the store today because when our friends stop by the store we often play this game called the high fidelity game where we choose a theme and do our top five of that theme. So would you be down to play with us? I would. Very much. Yay. Awesome. What if we did, uh, I don't know, top five music landmarks? That makes sense Seems to me. Appropriate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or top five music landmarks you've visited? Oh, no. <laughs> no? How about a little of both? <laughs> yeah. It could be whatever, really. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Natalie, do yeah. you want to go first? Yeah. I'll go first. All right, so okay. for number five, I'm going to get this one out of the way because it's it's not really an official land, music landmark. It's more personal, and it's kind of a recent social media phenomenon for gamers specifically. Um, there's this amazing series called Persona. I'm a huge fan. The games are hugely popular, not just for the games, but also the music. Like the music of Persona is known for being fantastic just on its own. You get acid jazz, rock, hip hop. It's very eclectic. Great compositions by Shoji Meguro. Great bands, great singers. Highly recommended. So anyway, um, in the fifth game, the setup is pretty much the same in all of them. You're a high school student just living life, going to school, going to work, hanging out with friends, fighting demons in dungeons, yada, yada, yada. And each location has a musical theme associated with it. And I put like 120 hours into this game. So it's like the music is deeply ingrained. Um, so the developers, they very accurately have recreated places around Tokyo. And so you get used to pairing a song with a very specific location in the city. So what's cool is that in the last few years, fans online have started taking these trips to Japan and documenting themselves going to the different major locations in the game. And that just makes me so happy. <laughs> and it's something that I personally would love to do, like with my headphones on, so I can listen to all the music and all those different spots because I'm a total gamer nerd. So that's my number five. Sounds great. That's cool. And at first, the way you were describing the music of the game, you said each place had like a different vibe. Yeah. But you were talking about jazz and I was thinking of Cowboy Bebop. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's kind of what I was thinking of immediately. Kind of similar 90s. vibe. Yeah. Um, like Western noir, jazz fusion. Totally, totally. Yeah, you should check it out. They've got they've got the soundtracks on Spotify and whatnot, and they're huge. There's like a little, there's a little something for everybody. They've kind of hit all of the different genres, and it's very high quality, really great recordings. So, yeah. That's cool. We need a virtual reality trip to these places with the sound playing. I'm going to go. That's on my bucket list for sure. I'm going to make oh, yeah, it happen. Cool. Yes. All right. So number four, Amoeba Music in Hollywood. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. 
So Amoeba is an independent music store chain that was founded in 1990 in Berkeley, California, with two subsequent locations in San Francisco and then Hollywood right on Sunset Boulevard in 2001. And it was one of the largest indie music stores in the world. It had everything, CDs, vinyl, merchandise, memorabilia, books by Crispin Cott. It had a second floor <laughs> dedicated, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dedicated to DVDs and Blu-ray. So just everything. I used to love hanging out there. I just drive there early on the weekend and just wander around and see what gems I could find. Um, famously, it hosted a lot of free shows in the store and like everyone's been there. Folks from Billie Eilish to Flying Lotus, Smashing Pumpkins, Paul McCartney, just so many people have performed there. Uh, sadly today though, the store has had to relocate. In 2018, it was slated to be demolished and replaced with some whack-ass mixed-use development. (laughs) Then the pandemic hit, but Amoeba was able to keep the lights on with lots of community support. And now it's located just down the street on Hollywood and Argyle. So at least it's alive and kicking and still in a pretty cool location. Much love for Amoeba. I love that original Los Angeles location. Yeah. Yeah, that was my favorite hangout spot. The new one is good too. I don't mean to knock it, but I did did really love visiting that, that original LA one. Yeah, it looks cool. I would like to check out the new one as well. Tara, you said you've been there recently? Yeah, uh, Sean and I went there because we went to Los Angeles for Cruel World Fest. And of course, we had to stop by Amoeba. I did intending to go to Amoeba before it moved, but they were having some sort of event in store and I didn't have tickets and I also didn't have time to really stick around. So I just kind of saw the outside and left, um, not knowing the future of what would happen. And yeah. yeah. So I went to the new one and it was packed. I mean, there was a line through the middle of the store all the way back. And on one hand, I was very happy that people were buying music, but on the other, I was like, I don't want to be here. Too many people. <laughs> that so, was kind of my experience uh, in the new one too. We had to wait in a line yeah. outside. It was shortly after it opened, but it's, it's that. So that was a while back. Now you're saying that it is still like that, which is uh, discouraging to me as a consumer. (laughs) How much smaller is the new location? Yeah, Uh, it is. um, I mean, it's still huge, but it uh, but having been to the first one, it feels smaller. Maybe I don't know if the aisles are narrower, if it's an optical illusion. The books are kind of nicely placed on sort of a platform, or at least they were when I visited. The layout is is great, but it just feels smaller, partly, I think, because so many people are still going there. Right, right. Yeah. I think the aisles were really, they were really cramped. Yeah. So they must have things just shoved as close as they can together, maybe just to make more room for all the stuff that's in there. It's like the Strand yeah. in New York, but mm-hmm. for records. Just books everywhere you turn. You're like, ah, where do I go? Upstairs, downstairs. So many books. You can find yeah. the books there too, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of overwhelming, but but yeah. Again, I I love that so many people are visiting and still supporting. Do the two of you remember the web series they had called "What's in My Bag," where like different artists would shop yes. in the store and then chat about what they bought? Yeah, I always yes. thought that was such a cute idea. I love that. Yeah, super cool. I think they still have that I think going. They do. On they do. Oh, okay, YouTube. awesome. The comedians, the Sklar brothers, who I know, they 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 had an episode. And they, nice. Th- we bond over music anyway, so we give each other records and stuff. So it was kind of cool to see things going into their bags. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that's still going then. Yeah. All right, number three, Carnegie Hall in Midtown Manhattan.
So I had to add this one because growing up as a classical pianist, Carnegie Hall was the dream, right? So this venue was constructed between 1889 and 1891, funded by industrialist and philanthropist Andrew Carnegie. Many classical greats have performed here, including Sergei Rachmaninoff, Richard Strauss, Gustav Mahler, on and on and on. Uh, Leonard Bernstein had his major conducting debut here at the age of 25. Another really interesting note is that Carnegie Hall was desegregated from day one, and opera singer Ciceretta Jones was its first Black performer in 1892 within its opening year, and she was only 24 years old. So that's super cool. But it's not just a venue for classical music. Other performers, including jazz and pop greats from Nina Simone, Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie, all the way to James Taylor, Ike and Tina Turner, and the Beatles. This National Historic Landmark is made up of three performance halls, the main one being Stern Auditorium, renamed for violinist Isaac Stern in 1997 in recognition of his efforts to save the building from demolition in the 60s. Carnegie Hall has 3,671 seats, 2,800 of which are located in the main Stern Auditorium, laid out across five levels, which is pretty epic. Also, the New York Philharmonic had residency here from 1892 to 1962. Yeah, I long, long ago let go of my dream of playing in Carnegie Hall, but <laughs> I will at least get my butt in one of those seats before I die. That's that's the new revised goal. Hey, it's never too late. Harold uh, Budd got his big break in his 40s. Or maybe 50s, actually. You know, I, remember, I don't know if late. I even want all that smoke, man. I don't know if I need 2,800 <laughs> seats staring at me. But um, I definitely want to go check it out. I know they do the Franz Liszt piano grand finals there. That that would be cool to watch. So maybe I'll go check that out. Growing up in New York, I went many times. It is it is you can really get a sense of the history when you go inside Carnegie Hall. Yeah, I saw Brian Wilson perform Smile there, which was you know as close I think as pop music gets to classical performance. I know uh, you mentioned the Beatles. There's very uh, famous photographs of them playing a show there in 1964. And Carnegie Hall had sold so many seats that they put rows of seats on the stage around the Beatles, which I don't think they had ever done before or since. It looks very strange. Uh, Everybody's being incredibly well behaved given, you know, that the country was kind of exploding with Beatlemania at the time. But it is it is very peculiar to see that. That's kind of shocking to hear that they kept themselves under control. They probably had like an electric fence, invisible <laughs> barrier. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. So we are in the home stretch, number two, 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. So this is the location of DJ Cool Herc's apartment and is known as the birthplace of hip hop back in 1973. So Cool Herc, real name Clive Campbell, he shared his passion for music by hosting parties in the community room of his building. He built his own sound system with two turntables. Uh, The first one was an end of summer back to school party, and it was actually his sister Cindy's idea because she needed a way to raise some money to upgrade her wardrobe before the school year started. So they charged the ladies 25 cents and the fellas 50 cents. I love it. And she booked her brother to DJ, who was only 16 at the time. And the magic was in the way Cool Herc could read the energy of the room and quickly switch up the records, playing only the hypest parts, you know, the percussive breakdowns, which kept everybody on the dance floor. He played soul and funk, crafting what we now know as the breakbeat. 
and he kept those breaks looping, right? And from there, a whole dance style emerged for these breaks, known, of course, as break dancing or b-boying. People would shout out little chants and rhymes leading to emceeing and rap. It is, it's where it all started, which I think is really cool. According to an NPR interview with another resident who grew up there during that time, quote, that community room remains relatively unchanged from what it looked like in the 70s. It has low ceilings, a small kitchen and storage closets off to one side. There's no plaque or memorabilia, nothing to suggest that a musical revolution began in this place. So it's completely pristine. Wow. Back in 2007, the building was deemed eligible for listing in the National Register of Historic Places as an exception, too, because usually a site has to be 50 years old to be eligible. So I'm not sure if that status has been certified or not today, but it certainly has been for decades within the hip hop community. That's really cool. I didn't know that. That actually was on my list, too. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> no we'll way. Be over and I'll yeah. add some other, I can add some other detail or I can. Yay. No, <laughs> we like overlap. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, in 2017, that stretch of Sedgwick Avenue, uh, including the high rise at 1520, uh, was renamed Hip Hop Boulevard by the city of New York. Nice. I will say that, as you mentioned, there's no way of, uh, there's nothing on the buildings. New York, one of the other reasons we decided to do these books is because New York has done a terrible job of honoring these historic music places. And when you see something, as you do, like with there's a tile thing at the uh, bottom of a street lamp to commemorate where the Fillmore East was, it's usually fans who did it, and it's not the city. Mm. Renaming that Hip Hop Boulevard was a pretty big deal, I think. You know, there's also Joe Ramon Boulevard, et cetera, et cetera. So they're doing little bits and pieces like that, but they don't, they have not done a great job of honoring that. Uh, and one other thing I'll say is that Apparently, everyone from Grandmaster Kaz of the Cold Crush Brothers, Grandmaster Flash, KRS-One, uh, Red Alert, who I used to listen to on the radio as a kid, uh, Sherry Cher of the Mercedes Ladies, African Bombada, Busy B, and Mean Gene. Apparently, all these people were there, or at least claimed to, claimed to have been there. As is often the case with these big culture-defining moments, the amount of people who say they were there is often much larger than the amount of people who could possibly have fit into maybe a community room at, at 1520 Sedgwick. But regardless of who was there, it is uh, one of the great defining moments in American cultural and musical history. And it's almost 50 years ago as of the time we're speaking right yeah. now, which is kind of bonkers. Yeah. And look at hip hop now. It's like this international, just culture defining it's movement. Huge. Yeah, it's major. That's so cool. Like what a time to be alive. I would have loved to have seen feel that energy with the people. You know? I was alive, but I was uh, three years old and living in New Jersey. <laughs> I, I cannot claim to have been there. <laughs> you were close to the action, though. I was close. I could feel it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I could feel it in my diaper. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number one. The shockwaves. Right. The bass. The shockwaves. The booming bass. <laughs> my number one pick is the Apollo Theater in Harlem. the place where stars are born and legends are made. So in 1934, this burlesque venue, which didn't even allow Black people to attend as performers or patrons, was transformed into a Black performance space and has since preserved the cultural heritage of the Harlem Renaissance. Nearly every major African-American performer has come through the Apollo in some capacity. Um, of course, we all know the Showtime at the Apollo Variety Show with the notorious Amateur Night is a huge part of its legacy. I watched it faithfully growing up on Wednesday night. The crowd 
was never around to play games. They let you know how they felt about you. And if you could win over the Apollo audience, it was basically your springboard to success. Although famous exceptions include 13-year-old Lauren Hill, who was booed. That clip breaks my heart all the time. It drives me crazy. And Luther Vandross, who was booed off the stage on multiple occasions. I think like five times he got booed off the stage, which is just nut bar insane. Luther Vandross. And uh, Dave Chappelle, too, I think was was booed. But yeah, very, <laughs> very crotchety crowd. And you can't forget tap dancer Howard Sandman Sims, who would come out with a broom and sweep performers off the stage if the crowd got too disgruntled. Um, it's probably futile to even like try to list Apollo alums, but I'll, I'll just name a random few. So in music, we have Ella Fitzgerald, who made her debut there at 17 years old. Jimi Hendrix won an amateur contest in 64. The Jackson 5 won amateur night in 67. Michael Jackson actually did a free concert uh, for a DNC fundraiser in 2002 there. And that was his final onstage performance before his passing. Comedians, we have Jackie Mabley, Richard Pryor, Red Fox, Nipsey Russell, Jamie Foxx, Tracy Morgan, just everybody. Actors like Sidney Poitier, dancers, Sammy Davis Jr., Josephine Baker. And this doesn't like remotely make a dent in the list. The Apollo did occasionally present non-Black acts like Stan Getz, Dave Brubeck, Buddy Holly, Tito Puente. And it just basically became a, a universal proving ground for entertainers across the spectrum it's still going strong and expanding today, presenting concerts, performing arts, education, and community outreach programs, and it is a certified state and city landmark. And that's it. Very cool. I would like to visit the Apollo one day. Yeah. That'd be the, as with Carnegie Hall, when you go in there, it is just like, it's overwhelming. Like I can't imagine. I saw, speaking of performers that, that were not Black performers, Duran Duran played there when I was a teenager. they been a benefit. And Lou Reed came out and played with them, and that was kind of wild. That's dope. I've seen a lot of things there. The, I think most recently was the uh, Daptone Super Soul Review, uh, which cool. they finally released on uh, on the, like a triple album, I think, a couple of years ago. And if you open it up, there were four shows, but they recorded them all and mixed them all together. If you open up the gatefold sleeve, you can see my wife and I. <laughs> in the, There's like oh, a what? crowd shot, and you can see where we were. I was like, that's us. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, I was pretty pretty bowled over when I was able to spot us there because that was a, it was a great night and it was it was pretty neat to have a uh, a physical document of us being there other than the poster that I bought. Yeah, wow, that's awesome. That's cool. All right, well, that's my list. It's a good list. Thank you, thank you. Some some really important musical landmarks. Absolutely. there. Yeah, especially Persona. <laughs> well, I've never even heard of that one, so I definitely want to look into it more for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I have never been to Japan. I would love to go one day and just to be able to kind of experience it with things that you're seeing before you go is, is just sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Some really awesome jazz clubs in Tokyo, if you can squeeze that in. Yeah. I also like those little tiny bars. They're almost like kiosks in a way. It's just like a t tiny room, um, usually like maybe enough room at the bar for like five or six people and they're playing records mm -hmm. uh, behind the bar. Very cool little spots like that. A lot of those in Kyoto, especially. Yeah. Before we get into your list, Crispin, mm -hmm. I'm curious of the New York book. What was something that you learned in your research that was just like, whoa, what? Like, what was something that you were just totally <laughs> surprised by? We did insane levels of, of uh, research to try and make this the kind of book that if anybody ever wanted to do it again, they would hesitate. 
<laughs> uh, so we spent untold hours in the New York Public Library pouring over like old microfilm uh, copies of The Village Voice and old phone books to kind of identify addresses and things. There were lots of things that I worked really hard to find that people sort of like spoke about in vague terms. Like when I was a, a little kid, I was a huge Kiss fan. They were like a big band at the time. And so I wrote the Kiss chapter in that book. And there was a place where they auditioned, I think the Henry Letang School of Dance, they were auditioned for Casablanca Records. And people had mentioned that and it had been, you know, it was kind of on the record that they had done that, but nobody had ever mentioned where it was. So I dug up the address for that. Finding little things like that, even if it didn't have any personal significance to me, really meant a lot. And there were like a lot of places in both of the books that we would work hard to find and then decide that we couldn't use because people still live there or even members of the family still live there. And we don't really, unless it's like common knowledge, like uh, the Dakota in New York, where John and Yoko, Yoko recently moved out of Dakota. I think she still owns the whatever part of the building that they lived in. But from what I understand, she moved upstate pretty recently. There was something in the New York Times about that. But, you know, people know that she lives there and it's culturally and historically significant. So we couldn't not include that. But we would find the address of where people grew up or where they lived when and only to discover that they or their family members still live there. So we couldn't include that. So there are things in these books that are not in these books that are like my own personal secret. <laughs> and that was kind of <laughs> fun so too. Cool. Like I know, but I'm not going to send like yeah. super fans to go there and root through people's garbage cans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But there were, there was, there was so much like everywhere you look in New York, everywhere you look in the Bay area, it seems like something was happening on the street. And because particularly in New York, the city has never put much interest in documenting or honoring any of those places, people walk by them every day without knowing. And so we, we kind of like the idea of at least in a book putting, you know, the locations in there. So maybe now people live in, holy shit, I live in this people who, you know, maybe walking through their own neighborhoods and think, wow, something actually happened here. Uh, other than, you know, there's another Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, I actually just, uh, I guess it was, maybe it was 2021. My best friend and I drove up uh, the East Coast and back down. And one place I knew I wanted to go by was Jay Maskus's house uh, because I had seen, I don't know where, how I found it, but that, oh no, I knew it because he, he lives in like Uma Thurman's dad's old house or something like that. It's this big old white house in Massachusetts, if I'm recalling. I forget. I already forget. Somewhere in New but England, I was there. For sure, yeah. yeah. Up northeast, yes. But yeah, you can find his address on the internet. <laughs> and he still lives there. Well that's and also he had a so skull on his porch. If somebody wants to find the places that we didn't put in the book, they can do the work and do it. <laughs> so I do yeah. I defy anyone to try and do the amount of crazy soul crushing desperately lonely work that we put in on these books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, we're grateful. It's, it's important yeah. work. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what your list is or hear what uh, I'm going to start with a couple from the books. Say the uh, number five will be out here in, in, the, in the Bay Area at 710 Ashbury Street in San Francisco. In the book, we had to explain to our publisher why we didn't just want to call it the Rock and Roll Explorer Guide to San Francisco, because the Bay Area, Berkeley, Oakland, the surrounding area was also vital, uh, particularly 
you know, beyond the mostly white 60s experience. There were there was a lot of music that was black artists and, you know, indigenous peoples of, uh, of California that were not happening in San Francisco. So we wanted to include and the Bay Area. It meant a lot to us. It may, I hope it means something to somebody else. So the book covers a lot of territory geographically, musically, and both before and after that period in the 60s that people think of probably when you say music, this is a book about rock and roll and San Francisco, they probably think of Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and Santana and all the and, and Big Brother and the Holy Company and all those groups. So the book is about a lot more. However, I chose 710 Ashbury, which is kind of the heart of that whole scene, kind of unofficially dubbed the Grateful Dead House. It still exists. It still looks at least architecturally as it did at the time. The dead only lived there for around two years. Various members of the group had kind of formative and psychedelic experiences uh, within the, the walls of people also called it the City Hall of Haight-Ashbury. The dead were busted there, except for Jerry Garcia. On October 2nd, 1967, he was out. That sort of set the wheels in motion for their eventual decision, you know, within the next six months to leave the city for Marin. But the house was kind of in the heart of the whole Haight-Ashbury scene when they played their final free show, and they played many free shows in and around the Panhandle and, and Golden Gate Park, which was also very nearby. They played their final free show on Haight Street in March 1968, and they walked there from the house and set up on a flatbed truck in the middle of the street. There are very many famous photographs of the street, just completely filled with people, people on the roofs of buildings behind them. The reason I kind of chose this as, as an important place, first of all, is that it is still a place when I've gone up there, there are still people every time you go, there's, there are people going there as sort of like a, a Mecca. It has been become much more expensive here than it was in the mid sixties in this area. And yet there are some incredible bands happening right now, like Sea Blight, Chime School, The Umbrellas, Shannon and the Clams, Lunchbox, James Wade, like so many. That's been true since the sixties. They've always had these great bands, even as it gets more expensive. But the reason I think that the Grateful Dead were be able to be what they were and play hundreds upon hundreds of different places in the Bay Area just before 1970 was because they it was very cheap. They could take over this entire house and kind of have it be an incubator for the music and the and the um, atmosphere and the feeling of collective spirit that they were trying to that they used to kind of create the kind of music that they did. It was really thriving, creative environment with few worries beyond getting busted. <laughs> uh, and it really meant, I think, a lot to them and was sort of indicative of the kind of place that lots of those bands were able to live at that time, which, you know, was, again, it was very inexpensive. They didn't have to work probably to the same degree, work other jobs to the same degree as many bands would today. It's not stopping the bands today, but the dead were so about that band and about the music they're playing all the time that to be able to that house i think is is really kind of an important cultural and historical artifact in this in this place that's my fifth choice that's cool wait so did you say that people live there now is it it is i don't know if it's uh, i think by... i think it's i don't know if it's rented or if it's a some if the people who live there own the house but it is occupied and i do know that one time i went up there and people were pe peering behind the from the curtain and <laughs> Almost certainly irritated that the constant flow of people taking photographs in front of their house, as as I yeah. think I would be too, if that it was happening in my house. That's yeah, crazy. For sure. This is probably one of those instances of well, me <laughs> wandering around and not knowing that something so significant was right there. You know, because I've walked through Haight Ashbury quite a bit, and I had no idea. That's so cool. There are a lot of places right on Haight Street on many of the side streets that 
that whole area, not just then, but, you know, later with, uh, there were venues, uh, like the I beam and, and the Brian Jonestown massacre, you know, they were all over the hate, uh, lower hate mostly, but you know, it's, it's, it's a place where, you know, everywhere you look, something happened there at one time or another. That's pretty cool. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So number four, I think is sort of an obvious choice, maybe even more obvious, uh, CBGB. But, yeah. but like the Dead House, uh, at the time that it was happening and all these bands who came on to become huge, Ramones and Talking Heads and Blondie, and even later Beastie Boys, when they were still a hardcore act, uh, played there a lot. The fact that this place existed that would kind of cater the, to these sort of weird bands and let them kind of do their thing to develop uh, in the heart of uh, New York City was was really critical, I think. It lasted, a, even though people kind of think of it as as for this period in the mid to late seventies, uh, it was, it lasted over three decades as kind of a crucial live music venue. It had a terrible shaky stage. It had horrible bathrooms <laughs> and it was, you know, really, you know, really important. Uh, it's coming up now, like, um, as with, uh, the birth of hip hop, it's coming up. It was founded in December, 1973. So it's almost on its 50th uh, anniversary. It was intended by Hilly Crystal, the uh, owner. Uh, as being CBGB stands for Country Bluegrass Blues and CBGB and Omfug Country Bluegrass Blues and other music for uplifting gourmandizers, which was sort of like his very pretentious effort to get it to be the kind of music that would never have been played there. It it kind of benefited from the collapse earlier in 1973 of the Mercer Arts Center, which a lot of bands like the New York Dolls had. They played there as uh is sort of as a residency coming up the building collapsed very spectacularly and hor horribly it sort of left a void in that part of the city for bands to play and for people to hear new music and uh, a lot of the mercer bands like suicide and the fast and wayne county uh, who became jane county they all wound up moving to cbgb to play so in its earliest days it, it it really was sort of an extension of what the mercer arts center was and that was really important to music in new york city and again culturally like a lot of those bands who came out of that scene became massive uh it's hard to imagine yeah. popular music without you know many of the bands that played cbgb in that era can you met because it seemed like I, I just finished uh, Debbie Harry's book and, you know, of course I've read Please Kill Me and, and, and the way that they all talk about it and Patti Smith's book, everyone just talks about just hanging out there. Oh yeah, you know, Ramones play, usually played on this day. Mm -hmm. Talking Heads were like, they're playing all the time. Can you imagine just, I'm going to go hang out at like in Atlanta, we have maybe something like 529 as a small or the Earl uh, small venue just a, the level of talent that was just hanging out in one place in that time period, is it's just crazy. It just blows my mind. And the way they described it, I think it, it sounded like there, the stage was kind of, kind of like levels. Like there was a, like the drummer would be on this separate back there was, Yeah, the, there was a riser that the drummer was on. And the stage yeah. itself, the, the, the proper stage was not very high up off the ground. It's just, man, I wish I had gone. <laughs> I went many times as a teenager, but, you know, by the time that it was no longer, it was a place where people played and I enjoyed seeing a lot of bands there. My wife, actually, her, at the time, her boyfriend was playing in a band that I was, I was there one New Year's Eve to, and saw opening for Luna. Uh, we didn't know each other oh, back cool. then. 
Uh, but it's sort of funny when we met, we sort of traced a lot of the places that we had been at the same time. And that was, that was one of them at CBGB on New Year's Eve in 2000, I think, when Luna wow. played. Wow, I bet that place was packed for that. It was, yeah, it was totally, totally packed. And uh, they gave out oh, champagne, <laughs> which I have serious uh, misgivings about whether or not you could actually call what they gave us champagne, but it was a nice touch. <laughs> that is a nice touch. <laughs> Very classy for CBGB. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tara, quick question. Do you remember, what's the name of the club that it's been closed, possibly torn down completely? I don't know. That used to be across from PCM. That was kind of like rough. Oh, Masquerade. Yeah, Masquerade. That's it. It kind of reminds me of that. I miss that place. Yeah, the floor was shaky. I went to shows at Masquerade. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that spot. I got exceedingly drunk at Masquerade and got thrown out. Nice. <laughs> I'm ashamed and also uh, amused to admit. <laughs> I will say, Debbie Harry, I feel like she held back in her stories about CBGB and her time there. I, I wanted more of the tea. I needed more more stories. And she really held back, I think, a lot. I, I've heard that. I haven't read the book yet, but I've heard that uh, people were hoping for a little bit more dirt or, de- yeah, or detail anything. at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. I needed more. Maybe she's saving for a part two. Could be. Could be. I think that my number, which number am I on? Number three. Three. Uh, is going to be, it was going to be uh, 1520 Sedgwick, but I'm glad that you picked it. It's an incredible place. And it gives me a chance to mention something that I alluded to with the Velvet Underground earlier, which was uh, Pickwick Studios. Everybody get down. It's where Lou Reed was an in-house songwriter uh, for Pickwick Records, which was sort of a an opportunist label that would put out. If you look on Discogs under Pickwick Records, you'll see like, here's an album of surf music and here's an album of folk rock and here's this. So they, um, you know, he as a songwriter, they would say, oh, we need 10 surf songs by the end of the week. And so they would all have to to write and record these songs. Reed uh, played on many of those those releases as well. He, when he met John Cale, he brought John Cale in and they recorded demos in the Pickwick Studios, which was at 816 43rd Avenue in Queens, Long Island City, this neighborhood that seems like, I can't believe this all happened in this place. Uh, they recorded two takes each of heroin and why don't you smile now? And that was in 1965, which is, you know, a couple of years before the Velvet Underground and Nico album came out. So that was kind of, you know, one of those places where you can't fathom something really important happening. And and yet it did. And, and for many uh, people, the Velvet Underground are the quintessential New York group. And so to have this kind of area, this place where they were able to sneak in and record these songs and start trying to figure out what they wanted to do was really kind of crucial in their development. That's super cool. Yeah. I didn't realize he was basically like a staff songwriter. Yeah. I mean, mostly songwriter. I think, I don't know if they, I don't know if they would have paid him for both roles. So they probably just called him an in-house writer. Uh, and part yeah. of his job was to, was to play on some of these songs. I'm not sure. I don't have any of these records and I don't remember. I, I'm sure I poured over the liner notes before, but I don't remember like how many of them he actually played on or, or what, but he definitely did. You can hear him on, you know, surf songs or folk rock songs or any of the other sort of things yeah. that the label heads would say, this is a trend that we need to capitalize on. And they quickly re- released these songs that sounded like this genre that was popular with kids and the records would sell in like drugstores and record stores and things. And, you know, they, they were 
working within very limited margins and probably made a lot of money on those. That's cool. I'm going to go uh, across the Atlantic for my next two as, uh, as I head into the home stretch. First is uh, the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. which uh, was the site of kind of many rock and roll, important rock and roll things. It, it, it was built in the mid-19th century on the grounds of the Peterloo Massacre, uh, which had happened earlier in the 1800s, which was sort of a, a protest against parliamentary rule and uh, not being able to have representation in parliament. The building itself was bombed during the Blitz in World War II, and it was later restored in the 1950s. It, it was uh, sort of a cultural space where they had lots of different events theater music. Bob Dylan played there twice, uh, the second coming in 1966, which is the that legendary show where uh, one of the many enraged folk purists shouted Judas when Dylan plugged in his guitar during the second set. He turned around to the band, soon to become the band of Big Pig Fang, and simply said, play fucking loud before they kind of went into a really explosive version of Like a Rolling Stone. Um, that show became very widely bootlegged and was erroneously claimed to have occurred at the Royal Albert Hall in London, but it actually happened at the Manchester Free Trade Hall. He did play Royal Albert Hall on that tour, but this was from a decade later. The Sex Pistols played the lesser Free Trade Hall within the Free Trade Hall before a pretty small crowd, mostly comprised seemingly of people who would go on to form bands like Buzzcocks, Joy Division, The Fall, and The Smiths. That is an example of like a show that was attended by very few people, but everybody who was there went on to do something also really big, which is kind of nuts. And wow. uh, that was that was probably one of the most important shows the Sex Pistols played solely because of the influence uh, it had on some great music that came out there. That's cool. Yeah, I, I don't know about this place either. I'm learning a lot today. Yeah, seriously. It's a, it's a hotel now, but the but the you know the exterior still looks as it did when it was built in the mid 1800s and then as it did when all these different musical things happened. So I have seen this one in person, actually. I said earlier that I hadn't been to all of them, but I think I have been to all of them on my list. Uh, I I didn't go inside, but just to see it from outside was pretty cool Uh, because it's a beautiful old building anyway, uh, in spite of having been the inside was completely destroyed in the Blitz. And number one for me is also in England, the St. Peter's Church in Woolton. which is a suburb of Liverpool. On uh, July 6th, 1957, a skiffle group called the Quarrymen uh, performed at the Walton Village Fate. A young Paul McCartney was at the Fate with a friend and was impressed in particular by a member of the Quarrymen called, named John Lennon, who was playing you know, lots of throwing in some rock and roll. Skiffle was sort of like a folk, folky music where they had washboards and like uh, bass guitars with, with just the one string on a bucket or whatever. Uh, and he was very impressed with Lennon, who played guitar and sang, and um, said, you know, I think I would like to join a band with him. If he hadn't been there, who knows? Mark Lewison is kind of a great Beatles scholar and also, for me, an incredible inspiration as a researcher. Uh, he put out a book uh, a while back that's the first of a planned three-volume set called Tune In, which covers the Beatles' history before they came along right up until 1962, before they got signed and Beatlemania hit in England. And in his book, he talks a lot about different events having to happen exactly a specific way for the Beatles to have become the Beatles. 
they were all very talented. They all, without meeting, they would not have drawn on each other's talent and, and energy. But, and, but it wasn't just, it wasn't just this. There were little things here and there. People's, you know, their predecessors coming to the Liverpool area at a certain time and all these things. Lots of different things had to happen. This is one of those critical places. And it's just this really kind of old, small church on this leafy grounds, a bit on a hill in this Liverpool suburb. And, you know, without this village fade happening on this date, there might not have been music as we know it in many ways. So that's yeah. my that's my number one. That's one of the big ones. That's amazing. Yeah. But that's it. That's my that's my five. I have actually seen the St. Peter's Church uh, where the uh, Woolton Village fate took place. I took a, a Beatles tour because I'm a Beatle nerd and I want to see all these places. It was a fantastic tour. Uh, we did not get out, but we passed by and I was like, oh, my God. It seems very not nondescript, but it seems very unlike where one might imagine rock and roll history happening. And certainly at the time, none of them could have imagined that it would mean anything. But it, it really is yeah. a pretty great place. And that's that's my top place because I'm such a Beatle fan. That's really cool. I mean, especially thinking about it in terms of, you know, a chain reaction almost that things had to happen this way or else we wouldn't have yeah. the Beatles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Um, yeah. I kind of think the Rolling Stones had a similar thing too. Because you had Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger who, yeah, I just had a brain. They met on a train platform. They were they knew each other as little kids, right? And then they ran into each other later on a train platform. And I think one of them had a pile of records as teenagers, yeah, and they started they, talking. Yeah. And that's how, like, that's exactly it. What if one of them had caught an earlier train? That's so crazy. Yeah, yeah. Keith Richards' book Life is really good. If you can get through it all, it's very long. <laughs> The audiobook. He actually does read part of it and you have to adjust your ears because the first part of the book is Johnny Depp mm -hmm. and then the next part is Keith Richards. So you're like, hold on, what is he saying? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, highly recommend that book. That's a really good list. I yeah, feel like I great. need to go back and like read more about these places that you mentioned. Thank you. Are they, I guess, how many, you said, let's see, two. Did you have two in California? Uh, no, uh, in one? California, just the dead house. But there are a great many places yeah. in california oh yeah our book is oh, our book sure. is full of the ones here uh i started sort of perspective work on a los angeles version of the book and wrote a sample chapter about the monkeys uh Ooh, which was published on legs mcneil's legsville website um but oh, i'm not sure that cool. i'm not sure that book is ever gonna happen interesting yeah there's a lot in los angeles alone. totally yeah Sweet. all right all right tara you're up it's my turn well i definitely stuck with only places that I've actually been to. I first made a list of all the places or I, all the places I could remember going to at the very least and then tried to somehow put them in some rank order, which is very hard to do because <laughs> some of the places are just like, you know, really, really monumental, huge, pivotal moments in music history. But these are the ones I decided to go with. All right, number five. A little bit of local flavor. St. Mary's Episcopal Steeple in Athens, Georgia. It is near the intersection of Oconee and William Street in Athens, behind Nucci's, which is also pretty famous for indie music in Athens. But REM played a birthday party there for their friends, April 5th, 1980. And this is their first show, basically. But no one knows the the like monumentous 
event that this actually is, you know? It's a birthday party mm-hmm. in 1980. <laughs> and they didn't even have a band name yet. But the band, Michael Stipe, Mike Mills, Peter Buck, Bill Berry, performed a set with originals, covers from 60s and 70s, and then they became a huge local success pretty much soon after that. They recorded their first single, Radio Free Europe, in 1981. So, like I said, yeah, very soon after that birthday party was in 1980. This was in 1981. And then their debut EP, Chronic Town, came out in October of 1981. So the building uh, was actually demolished, the, the church, but the steeple still stands, and it's behind Nucci's, like I mentioned. But just before 1990, uh, Athens unanimously passed a rezoning request, which permitted the construction of 16 condos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's so now it's called the Steeplechase Condominiums. And yeah, I just wanted to call some attention to Nucci's as well. Nucci's space became a, a popular practice space for a ton of Athens bands and they hosted benefit concerts and music workshops and a ton of other things to help local, uh, local bands and musicians and artists. But since the mission of Nucci's space was to help the emotional, physical and professional well-being of musicians and artists, they not only provide practice space, but they also have volunteer physicians to go there a few times a month. They have so that uninsured musicians could get some care and then also a low cost eye exams and even therapy counseling sessions. So I just think that's so cool. That is, and yeah, Nucci is great. actually named, yeah, it's named after a person who was very into the local music scene there and was struggling with some mental health issues. So yeah, they've carried carried on and helped helped to make it such a good place for the local scene there. And we all know that REM's from there, Love Tractor, B-52s, gosh, the Pink Stones if you want something newer. But yeah, Athens is is kind of a a mecca for indie rock. Olivia Tremor Control is in Athens, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. It's a good one. I love them. Yeah, I didn't want to just list, you know, 40 Watt, but I've also (laughs) been to the the Trestle, which is not far from there that's on the back cover of Murmur, but I wanted to put in some Atlanta, Georgia, Athens, something. Um, But yeah. All right, so number four is Woodstock, where the actual festival was, or where it took place. But yeah, just outside of Woodstock, New York, the grounds where the monumental historical music festival took place was actually in Bethel, New York. And but it's, of course, we know Woodstock Music Art and Fair, commonly referred to as Woodstock, was held uh, August 15th through the 18th, 1969, on Max Yasker's dairy farm. It's like 40 miles, I guess, from the actual town of Woodstock. In actual distance, yes, but me. it's a long way on the road. <laughs> it's yes. much further than you think. It's it's not 40 miles of highway. It's 40 miles of winding roads. Right. It's actually a really nice drive. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's not really pretty. When people go to Woodstock, the town of Woodstock, the village of Woodstock, which understandably is sort of spent a lot of time capitalizing on the Woodstock vibe, and they, it, it really isn't that close in terms of, you know, being able to go from one to the other. Yeah. But the site 
where it happened is is an amphitheater now and it's it's pretty wonderful to be there and think about all that stuff. It really is. And when I was there there was, you know, the the grounds are kept so nice. They had a peace sign mowed in the grass in the center. Where and it's hard to imagine because this was like one of the largest music festivals to ever take place. There was 400,000 attendees. But when you go there you're like, how did they squeeze 400,000 people here plus it was raining? for a few of those days. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's hard to imagine all of this stuff happening, but it was a pivotal moment in popular music history and is now the home to Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, which hosts a lot of events and live performances still. And it's uh, officially listed in the National Register of Historic Places. And it's only two hours from New York, so if you are visiting New York, rent a car. Go on a little country drive. They have a pretty fun museum there too of that of that era and of the music and the festival, but also just kind of like that whole, I guess what you can describe as that sort of countercultural scene. Um that's yeah, there. Definitely. And I think there's also a monument where they built the amphitheater mm-hmm. is not directly like where the stage thing. was before, but there's sort of like a monument to where the stage was uh, at the original festival yeah. on the grounds, which is kind of cool right. to think about too. Very cool, yeah. And if you are going to rent a car and go there, you might as well go to the Big Pink House, which you had already mentioned, but also kind of related to what you had talked about earlier. Someone lives there now. It's a private residence. so It is. Uh, I have seen it on VRBO, so you can actually rent it. Oh, I don't know if that's really? the case now, but within the last few years, at least, it was available for uh, people to go and spend a weekend or whatever. So it's it, maybe I went, or maybe I was up there too close to the pandemic, but I think it was not available at that time. But might have been related to pandemic purposes. That house is less than ten miles from where my mother moved us when I was a little kid. When we, when I was ten, we lived in Sargardies. That's in West Sargardies. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah, it's very beautiful out there. And yeah, a lot of hills and curves and dairy farms. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful. <laughs> the the Woodstock they did in 99, that was elsewhere though, right? Nearby? 99 was in Rome, New York. In Rome, okay. Which was further upstate and it was on the grounds of a disused uh, airfield, a military airfield. And it was mm. on concrete. It was a terrible, terrible place for a festival. Yeah. And you can see that manifested in everything that happened there. It was just the wrong... It was not a, it was not a, not a great, not a great place. I remember that not going well. (laughs) I was living in San Francisco at the time and I would not have gone anyway because the, much of the lineup was not for me, but, but it just, it seemed to be everything about it seemed to be the antithesis of Woodstock. And in the, I think there were two different documentaries recently. You can really get a sense of that. What a Mm -hmm. horrible disaster it was. Yeah. I was going to say definitely no uh, peace, love and happiness there. More like bonfires and, yeah. and sexual assaults and men. Chaos, yeah. <laughs> Incel hostility. Right. Yes, yes. All right, number three, we go a little bit west to Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota to First Avenue. The lights went out and Nikki started to grind. Which is a venue. Uh, I think a lot of us probably remember that venue as being the like Prince venue from Purple Rain. But in the late 1960s, Alan Fingerhut, which is a great last name, 
Danny Stevens leased the old Greyhound bus depot in downtown Minneapolis and planned to open a rock club. I like it. Uh, The club opened in 1970 as the depot and over the next two years hosted national acts like The Kinks, B.B. King, Frank Zappa, Ike and Tina Turner. And then 1971, they were having money issues, so they had to close it down. American Events Company uh, renamed it, bought it, renamed it Uncle Sam's, which is a really terrible name for any kind of club or venue, I'm sorry, (laughs) as part of a franchising agreement. And live music kind of took a back seat to DJs playing disco music. It was the time for disco. But then in the late 70s, manager Steve McClellan started booking live bands again. And so Ramones, Pat Benatar, people like that sold it out. After a two-year stint as Sam's, they changed the name one last time to First Avenue. And that name change kind of pushed its way into the evolution of the club with its music styles in the Twin Cities, so punk and R&B. And First Avenue became a focal point for both of those music movements in the in the area the coat room interestingly became its own little club within a club and indie bands started playing there in the 70s the replacements had like a really notable show there which i think is super cool and yeah unpredictable shows like that drew more and more people to the club and then mcclellan started booking regularly black r&b acts like the time fly time and prince and that kind of became their home. And then, of course, 1983 rented the spot out for scenes in Purple Rain, and it boosted their revenue, which they so very much needed. But the club is still open today, and I peeped the calendar. Dinosaur Jr., The National, Dandy Warhols, Cindy Lee, all have shows booked there this month, so rad. So you you say you've been there, because you've been to all these places. Yes. Who did you see I've there? I've been I didn't see anyone. I was there for a wedding and could only just go to the outside. It was during the daytime, so they weren't open. Gotcha, gotcha. But the the space is really cool on the outside, too, because they have all these, it's like painted black with stars, and it has like everybody's names painted in it, so in the stars. So very cool photo op, anyways, without going inside. Nice. Yeah. All right. Number two, Strawberry Fields slash Imagine... Memorial for John Lennon in New York City. Imagine all the people living for today. Strawberry Fields is a 2.5 acre landscaped section in Central Park. And it was designed by the landscape architect Bruce Kelly, and it's dedicated to Beatles' former member John Lennon. It's named after Beatles' song Strawberry Fields Forever, which was written by John Lennon, and also named for the former Strawberry Fields children's home in Liverpool, England, which is near his childhood home. But the entrance to the memorial is located on Central Park West, West uh, 72nd Street, the Dakota, which we mentioned earlier, which was formerly John and Yoko's place of residence. It was here where he was walking to his his home on December 8th, 1980, where he was shot and murdered, sadly. But the memorial is a triangular piece of land, and the focal point is a circular pathway with mosaics inlaid, and the single word, imagine. And it's really... It's so moving just to see just this like concrete mosaic. I don't think it's concrete. It's like marble or something fancy. But it's just, 
it's not like that big of a deal, but it's just so moving because of who John Lennon was and the impact the song and the Beatles had. And seeing it in person is just, it's a big deal, I feel like. I don't know. It's pretty. It's a pretty inspiring place and, and nice yeah. that uh, he was honored in a, in a place that is Central Park is sort of this grand utilitarian wonder that's there for everyone. And though, you know, it's a spot that could be seen from the Dakota, which is for extraordinarily wealthy people, the where they chose to honor Lennon and kind of his uh, universal message that it's there. And when you go, you see it. There's people who have traveled from all around the world just to be in this spot and they'll sing Beatles songs together. And it's a, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty moving place. The imagine, not plaque, but, uh, the tiling. Yeah. Uh, and that's it's like a fields. It's a, it's a, it's kind of a, a nice. And if you can go there when it's quiet, it's also really great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It looks really pretty too, how there's often flowers arranged in a peace sign around it. Yeah, and I think that was um, an artist, well, for a while there was an artist, I think his last name was Santos, I read about him, he would go there often and make sure there were flowers and decorated the mosaic like every day, but I think he passed away in 2013 maybe from cancer, I mm. think, which is sad, but That's uh, sweet though. yeah, they do a good job I think of keeping, keeping up with the, the memorial. Okay, we are at number one, and it's another New York spot. Sweet. Right. <laughs> Drum roll. It's the Chelsea Hotel. Here they come now. Chelsea girls. <laughs> uh, I have never been inside the Chelsea Hotel, but I have been outside of it, and I also have seen the movie of the play Chelsea Walls and I have heard so many stories from all of these books that I've read from artists that have lived there or have stories of of people that they knew that lived there mm-hmm. um, but yeah hotel in Manhattan New York City so there's two, about 200 well at least I don't know if this is today or before 250 units in the hotel located at 200 West 23rd Street between 7th and 8th Avenue in the neighborhood of Chelsea. And it's been the home of writers, artists, musicians, actors. And although the Chelsea no longer accepts long-term residents, the building still has many who lived there before, before the change in policy there. Arthur C. Clarke wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey while he was staying at the Chelsea, and it's also where Nancy Spungen, girlfriend of Sid Vicious, of the Sex Pistols, was found stabbed to death in 1978. And just like a ton of people have lived there that are just wildly prominent and just, that's just crazy. Chet Baker, Nico, Tom Waits, Patti Smith, Jim Morrison, Iggy Pop, Dee Dee Ron, Alice Cooper, Edith Piaf even, Cher, Rufus Wainwright, I mean, Madonna even lived in the Chelsea at one point in the 80s. And uh, Leonard Cohen lived lived there. Janis Joplin had a room there. Bob Dylan wrote uh, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands there. And Nico has Chelsea Girls. It's just, it's, it's just a kind of a, it's a ghostly place, I would say. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of bad stuff there, but a lot of good <laughs> stuff too. Yeah. So I'm curious though, why this place? It's always interesting when... You have these it spots that emerge. 
what is it about this location that attracted so many people? Like, how did it start? I think it was cheap at the time. <laughs> exactly. It was very welcoming to artists and, and writers, musicians uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that a decade ago, I think it changed hands and a lot of those people started getting forced out by the new owners who uh, some of them are still, or at least as of when we put our New York book together, um, we're still there uh, and sort of protected mm-hmm. by city housing laws. But uh, I don't know how many of them are there now. But I think that it really was Janice Joplin, of course, was another person who spent a lot of time there. I think I, maybe you mentioned her. Yeah, it was it, it was that it was very welcoming to uh, artists. And yeah, I think that was probably the reason there are other hotels like that in New York, like the Hotel Albert, where bands like Love and Spoonful play and everything like that. But the Chelsea was by far the most famous and probably the most infamous as well, uh, in that it was very, very open to artists. And with that, probably brought with it some less desirable personality traits. Yeah. That included murder and drugs and uh, heavy uh, drug use and, and everything. Yeah. There was also a bar, I think, in the lower level, Don Quixote or something like that. And uh, I think Patty Smith talks about that spot a lot and how people would go there and and just just camp out at a table all day drinking, writing music, writing poetry, and it would just be this like hangout spot. And I think she has even mentioned like Robert Maplethorpe using his art to pay for a room a time or two, something like that. I could be mixing it up with other spots that she mentioned, but yeah. And again, just seeing the outside of this place in New York, it, it just kind of was overwhelming. I would love to go inside. That's a cool number one pick because you got like a, a concentration of all kinds of artistry kind of brewing in the same spot. Yeah. Sure. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. I'm really impressed that there wasn't more crossover. High five, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Surprised. Only one. That's great. A lot of really yeah, important historical really places that, uh, that mean a lot in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Do we want to do some honorable mentions? Yes, we should. Yeah. Shall I just keep going with yeah. some of mine? Hit it. And then we'll switch. Well, places that I've been to that I have on the short list, which I won't list them all because it's a lot. The Beverly Hills Hotel, where Whitney Houston died. And also it's the Hotel California on the cover of the Eagles album. Graceland, uh, Bourbon Street, The Viper Room. Okay, but places that I haven't been to that I would like to go to, Muscle Shoals, Paisley Park, Abbey Road. Yeah. I'm shocked you didn't do Dollywood. I have it on here too. Yeah, I just feel like I talk about Dolly Parton so much. I'm from Tennessee, Crispin, so she's my holler hillbilly (laughs) sister friend. I think her her work in and out of music, uh, she, I think everybody claims Dolly as their own because she's so wonderful. Yeah, she is. Saint Dolly. <laughs> How about you, she Kristen? Can do, she can do no wrong. I would say the, the Hacienda was a club that was a real big deal in Manchester. Um, a lot of house music and a lot of, you know, bands like the Smiths and the Stone Roses all played there as a, as a kid, as a, I mean, as a, in my, my teen years when I kind of discovered a lot of these bands and heard about this club that was, uh, New Order, Joy Division Associated, I really wanted to go. And that place was gone long before I ever got a chance to go over as a as an adult tourist. So that's a place that no longer exists that I wish I could have seen. You know, there are lots of different, the, the, the Fillmore 
uh, in San Francisco is a huge place that mm -hmm. still a lot of shows are happening. Uh, it was in the 60s, it was Fillmore Auditorium before the Fillmore West, which opened in a different part of town on Van Ness. Uh, it was open for a couple of years later. The Fillmore, as a name, returned to where it is today and where it was originally as the Fillmore Auditorium. And that is a gorgeous venue where so many great shows have happened over the years. And I get over there a few times a year for shows you know, today. Um, so that, I think, is a huge one uh, as well. Nice. What about you, Natalie? Um, let's see. I had uh, The Crossroads, where Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. Uh, Whiskey A Go-Go. I also had Paisley Park, Studio B in Nashville, Studio 54, and Royal Albert Hall. That's my short list. Cool. Yeah. Still no overlap. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, Paisley Park. Nice. This was very educational. I feel like I've learned so much in this chat. Same. Yeah. <laughs> I need to uh, plan some travels with Crispin's books and go visit some more spots. And yes, everyone in the store, if you're here shopping, listening, pick up Rock and Roll Explorer Guide to New York City, Rock and Roll Explorer Guide to San Francisco and the Bay Area, and the Little Book of Rock and Roll Wisdom. If you need some reading material, life quotes. <laughs> it's... That Wisdom. book is mostly just terrible advice from rock stars. <laughs> I love it. I love it already. Sounds good. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I do have a new book hopefully coming out soonish. Me and a, and a, uh, a, a very um, well-known writer and figure. I've just signed with a literary agent. I can't say anymore, but I'm feeling very optimistic and excited about this book project that I'm working on now. So, Fantastic. Nice. Good luck with that. Yeah. I can't wait to hear yes. more. Yeah, if this conversation is any indication, I'm sure it's going to be full of insight and information that any music lover would appreciate. So we'll be looking out for that. Thank you. Totally. All right. Well, let's lock up the store and go home. Yeah, before this kooky storm comes back. <laughs> we got to go hunker down. Yeah. Thank you so much, Crispin, for stopping by the store. It was so cool to see you again. It's always great to have a friend in the store. Please come back. I will. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed uh, meeting both of you and I'll definitely shop here again. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Right. Bye, everybody. Happy trails. Bye. Bye. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.